0: Thank you. It's always great to have Johnny here. I know I'm going to hear a strong good morning on the first try. Uh, My name is Clint Wright, and for those of you who have not gotten a chance to meet, I'm the associate pastor at our White House campus. You could probably tell by the beard and the boots. That's a dead giveaway. Someone's here for White House. Uh, But actually, y'all, this is the first church that me and my wife joined uh, when we moved to Tyler. It's been over, uh, gosh, over 10 years ago, and so this place has a special Uh, place in our hearts, and so it's good to be with you this morning. With that said, let's get in God's Word together. Let's do that. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to be opening your Bibles there, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think this passage, all of them are relevant. I know I found this passage very relevant for my life this morning. We're going to start in verse 13, but you know, it's almost become cliche to say we're living in a time of rapid cultural change uh, in the world around us. I mean, the ground beneath our feet is shaky. And this is true, especially in the area of faith, in the world that God has placed us in. You know, Gallup just released an article that revealed for the first time, for the first time since they've been doing this survey, less than half of the people in our country attend some sort of church, have some sort of church membership. Y'all, they've been doing this survey since 1937. And at that time, church membership is about 73%, and it's remained about there at about 70% for six decades. For 60 years, it barely moved. But then about 2000, there began to be a decline until today. That number is 47% of our culture uh, has any kind of church membership. So that means if we were doing this exact same thing we're doing now, having this exact same meeting from 1934 to 2015, this would be a meeting of respectable, admirable, normal people. Today, having this meeting, this is a meeting of weirdos and oddballs. Now, some of you are used to being called a weirdo. That's nothing new for you. But maybe now you've got a new reason. Add something else to the list. You know, I think for me, man... I'm comfortable doing life and living and navigating a culture where I'm considered normal. Doing it when I'm considered a weirdo, I've found more difficult. I was reminded of a a book that I like to, my kids used to love for me to read to them, a book called Are You My Mother? Have y'all read this book? A classic Dr. Seuss book. And you know, the book, this bird, he he pops out of the egg, but just so happens his mom has left, go find him a worm. And so he wakes up and he can't find anyone like him in the world. So he hops out, and he's trying to find his mother, and he goes to a dog, and he's like, wait a minute, we're different. Goes to a cat, wait, that can't be it, we're way different. Goes to a cow, he goes to what they call a snort. For those of you who don't speak, Dr. Seuss, a snort is a bulldozer. Even trying bulldozers, maybe I belong with you, but no, everywhere he goes in this whole world, no one is like him. And I think, I think that's us sometimes. We look around, and this world seems different than we are. And I think we have to acknowledge, I think it's good to acknowledge, hey, living in that world, it's difficult, isn't it? But let me tell you where I take solace, where I take refuge. Every word of your New Testament, all of it, the whole thing was written to believers who the surrounding culture thought was weird at best, dangerous at worst. This is the exact scenario. All the epistles, all the, gospel, all the gospels were written into in today's passage listen, it is, an essential, it is an essential passage for teaching us, as Christians, how we live in this world. Jesus is telling you this morning, this is how you live in a world filled with dogs and cats and cows and snorts." And here's what he's telling us this morning, I think. "You, Christian, you are peculiar for a purpose. You are peculiar for a purpose. Now, let's start reading. We'll pick up in Matthew, Matthew 5, verse 13, and we'll read through verse 16. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So what Jesus is going to do here, he's going to give us two analogies. And both analogies show us your peculiarity, your difference in the world around you. In fact, even the way he says it, so that you is an emphatic you. You and you alone, Christian. Nobody else can do this. Just you. But then each uh, metaphor is followed by a condition. That if you, don't, if you don't meet this condition, you can lose your purpose. So this first metaphor, is salt, many of you are familiar with this passage. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but I think it's easy to miss the value that he has just shown these weirdos and oddballs. We know this sermon, he's preaching out in the boonies, out in the sticks of the biblical world and people have come from every nook and cranny all around the oddballs and misfits and he just told them, you are one of the most valuable commodities on this earth. Because in the ancient times, in the biblical times, y'all, salt was essential for life. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Salt did a lot of things. If you open any commentary, you'll find about 35 things that salt does. But we don't want to be here all day, so we'll focus on two. Two of the most essential things that salt did that as soon as Jesus said this, they knew what he was talking about. Number one, it's a preservative, it prevents decay. Salt was the refrigerator of the biblical world. Now, when was the last time you saw a house without a refrigerator in it? You don't. They're essential, right? And if you don't believe me, just pay attention to what happens inside of you the next time your refrigerator goes out unexpectedly. That'll throw you into a level five conniption fit, won't it? When you find out your refrigerator or freezer went out, that happened to me recently. It's not fun. Well, in the biblical world, what they would do, they'd kill an animal or they'd get a fish and they'd immediately throw it into a basket of salt to prevent its decay. Because if they didn't, very, very quickly, within a day, that meat would begin to rot and it would get putrid, and it would stink, and it would make you sick if you ate it. So what Jesus is saying here is, listen, left on its own, the world rots. It rots. Sin, it enters this world, and it's like a, a bacteria. It's like these microbes that have infected the creation and cause it all to decay. Think about Genesis. You know, God creates the whole world, and he creates everything Good, all of it. But before you turn the page in your Bible two times, God says this in chapter six, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. We're six chapters in and it's only evil continually. And then by the time we get to chapter 11, God has had to hit the reset button three times because things have spun so out of control. Left on its own, the world rots. So how does God fight this rapid decay in the world? You and you alone, Christian. He sprinkles some salt on it. That's what he does. And your presence in a fallen world should prevent decay. That is God's purpose for your life. The second function that everyone knew about salt was its seasoning. It made everything delicious. And y'all, this is an analogy that we can probably better understand today than they even could back then because we have french fries today. Can you imagine? Amen, right? When Jesus said that, they didn't even have french fries yet, y'all. We have given hundreds of billions of dollars to places like McDonald's and Burger King because when they sprinkle salt on those french fries, man, it's delicious. Yes. When the world sees people living as citizens of the kingdom, It should be attractive. It should be delicious. So in a world that's decaying, it's full of sin, it's rotting, how can God show his goodness, his mercy, his joy? You and you alone, Christian. He sprinkles some salt on it. That's what he does. That is God's purpose for your life, to demonstrate the goodness of God. But there's a condition There's a condition here. You can lose your peculiarity. I'm going to get that word out by the time the sermon's over. You can lose your distinctiveness and your difference. He says, uh, you know, what happens if a salt, if it loses its taste? Or if you have the NIV, it may say if it loses its saltiness. If salt loses those qualities that make it peculiar to it, it can't serve its purpose anymore. You know, here's what's interesting though. Do you know it's actually impossible for pure salt to lose its saltiness? Pure sodium chloride is one of the most stable elements that we have. But you know what you can do? You can dilute it. You can contaminate it. You can mix it with a bunch of other contaminants so that it dissolves into everything else and loses its distinctiveness. And this is what exactly what would happen in the New Testament. So Obviously, they didn't have refining processes like we do. They didn't get pure salt, pure sodium chloride. What they do is they get it from the Dead Sea, but it was mixed with all these other minerals and sediments. And over time, that salt, it would get too contaminated or it would get wet from fish being thrown in and taken out, and it would dissolve away, and you were left with something that looked like salt. You were left with this white powder that had lost its saltiness. And so they would dip their finger in, put it on their tongue, and they knew if it didn't taste salty anymore, it could not prevent decay. It would not make things delicious. It could not serve its purpose anymore. So that what they did, all, the only thing it was good for, they'd throw it out in the street, because the street, they'd get all these cracks in it, and they'd just fill cracks in the street with it. It wasn't good for anything else. And so here you had this thing that was supposed to be essential for life, and everybody's just walking on it. It's not serving its purpose anymore. It's, it's interesting to me. Man, and God knocked me over the head with this this week that what Jesus is worried about here is the exact opposite of what we are often worried about. Listen, Christians, there is out there, there is a Christian industrial complex out there in our culture dedicated to convincing you and me that we should be very afraid of the world out there. That this increasingly evil and secularized world is a threat. You know, they're going to they're going to come in, they're going to take away our tax exemption, they're going to turn all our kids into socialists and all hope is lost. What are we going to do? Be afraid. Here Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned at all about what unbelievers are doing. Not even a little. He says, if salt isn't preserving the meat, it's not a problem with the meat. It's a problem with the salt. If salt isn't preserving, if it isn't adding goodness, you must ask what has happened to the salt? Is it possible we've mixed it with other things and diluted our saltiness? This type of contamination is exactly what most people believe is behind this sharp decline of faith in our culture. And so we have a chart, and this is just that same Gallup poll, just their findings put into a chart. And so you can see for a long time, we essentially have, you know, it's kind of some ebbs and flows and up and downs, but man, recently it is dropping off a cliff. Why is that? What's different now? Well, in the past, you know, they asked a lot of questions that go along with, are you a member of a church anywhere? But so they'd ask things like people who were no longer in church, they'd ask them, well, how, before you left, how often did you go to church? And it was really people in the periphery, I go on holidays, you know, I go on Mother's Day, um, I go when maybe I've got one big need in my life or something like that. And you ask them, why did you leave church? And it essentially boils down to they, they didn't believe what we teach anymore. And so maybe they'd say things like the miracles, virgin birth, hey, those are too unrealistic. Or they didn't believe our moral teaching. You know, they'd say uh, their moral teachings are too rigid, too constraining. I, I don't want to live like that. And and so they leave. Today is different. Today we see people walking away, not who have been on the periphery, but who have been committed Christians. And this is true particularly among uh, younger Christians. So they believe in Scripture. They want to follow its moral teaching. And so you ask them, why are you leaving? And it comes down to this. It's not because they don't believe what we are teaching. It's because they believe that we don't believe what we are teaching. They, they came looking for salt, but they put a little on their finger and dipped it on their tongue, and they found the salt had lost its saltiness. And so the drop in church membership has not been caused by hedonism or progressivism or atheism, but by disillusionment and contamination. So what is his contamination? What causes us to lose our saltiness? There's a lot of them. I'll just say this. Every time, every time Christianity becomes a means to an end, even those in, if those ends are good, and they often are good, every time that happens, we've lost our saltiness. Every time you follow Jesus so that you can get something else, I don't care what that something is, you are losing your saltiness. Jesus is going to address this coming up soon. Matthew 6.33, he picks out three things that we would all agree are good. Food, water, clothes. These things are essential. They are good. Everyone wants them. Does anyone here want to be found naked, starving, and dying of thirst? No, nobody wants it. You don't want that. He says, don't even make those things the primary pursuit of your life. He says, seek first my kingdom. And when we do that, when we make him primary, all these other good things come as blessings. But when we make those things primary, they cease to be blessings and they become idols. And so let me tell you what's real easy for me. Here's what's real easy for me. It is real easy for me to come to church because I want friends who think like me. Or because I want other people to teach my kids good values or because It feels good. It makes me happy. And I like seeing people or, you know, because I want to help advance a cause, even a political cause that I believe in. And those are all good things. But you know who else wants those things? Everyone who wants food, water, and clothing, which is everybody. So how much will we maintain a peculiarity? How much will we maintain a distinctiveness by pursuing the same things everybody else wants? I would argue, exactly not at all. We become salty by pursuing something different, by considering all things lost that we may gain Christ, whom we see Jesus as our great treasure, for whom we will gladly sell anything we have that we may gain him. That is pure, undiluted salt that impacts the world. I was reminded what this looks like this week when I watched Tim Duncan's acceptance speech into the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm sure we got more Mavericks fans than Spurs fans here. Maybe not, I don't know. But everyone can agree he was a great player and a great human being. He was presented the award by David Robinson, who was also a great player and a great human being and a well-known, strong believer. And so, at the very beginning of his speech, he turned and thanked David Robinson was the first spoke person. He thanked. And here's what he said. He said, you know, people always ask, what did he, that's David Robinson, what did David Robinson tell you? What did he show you? Because I don't remember a single thing that we sat and talked about specifically. What he did was he was a consummate pro, an incredible father, an incredible person. He showed me how to be a good teammate, a great person to the community, and all those things. Not by sitting there and telling me how to do it, but just by being that. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, David Robinson didn't sit me down and give me lectures and show me pie charts on how to get in the Hall of Fame one day. He simply lived following Christ, and being around that changed me. That's what he did. So, men and women, are you concerned about the decay and the rottenness in our world? Seek first his kingdom. Follow him with your whole heart. Maintain your saltiness. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in the house, to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the second metaphor obviously is light. It's a different metaphor with the same message. You are peculiar with a purpose. Now this metaphor is a little easier for us to understand because we use light for the same things they did, to see things. That's what we use light for. So Jesus is saying, you and you alone, Christian, it's that same emphatic, you and you alone, Christian, can show the world something they are unable to see without you. Now, in the Bible, and even today, it's a symbol for knowledge. But here's what's interesting. Today, we we live in the most knowledgeable and scientifically advanced culture the world's ever known. There's a lot of really smart people out there. So what is it that we and we alone can help a very smart, advanced, educated world see? Simply put, I would argue, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. Because for all of our so-called enlightenment, listen, without Christians, the world still has no fix for the fact that men love the darkness and hate the light. Romans once said, men, in all of our knowledge, we suppress the obvious truth that we were created by an all-powerful God. And the world is completely clueless, clueless, On how to redeem the human heart. How is it that someone can be spiritually dead and then be made alive again? How is it that someone who is a sinner, who is guilty, can be forgiven by a righteous, holy God? You and you alone, Christian, you can show the world something they cannot see on their own. But again, there's a condition here. And here's the condition you can forget your purpose. You can forget why God has you in this world. Have you ever, have you received a wedding invitation lately? And it says in big letters, your presence is requested. What Jesus is telling us here is, listen, in order for your light to shine in darkness, you got to show up. Your presence is requested. So he says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Where this sermon is happening in the Sea of Galilee, it was 600 feet below sea level. So, in relation, everything else for miles was on a hill. When you're down on the Sea of Galilee, you can see a city at night as far as 40 miles away. And so Jesus says, listen, it's impossible to hide those cities. You can't do it. That light is always present. Then he says, listen, you don't light a lamp and then hide it under a basket. Why would you light a lamp and then cover it? It's silly. That's what my daughter Hannah would say to me. Dad, that makes none sense. The whole, the whole purpose of lighting the lamp is to light the darkness. So to cover the light, to hide the light, is to forget its purpose, isn't it? In fact, he says the opposite. You strategically place the lamp on a stand in the place where it will light everything in the room, where it will penetrate and drive away the most darkness. It's the same with Salt. You can make the same analogy. Salt doesn't serve its purpose on the shelf. Salt can't even serve its purpose if you just set it right next to some meat. What do you got to do? You got to rub it in. It's got to come into contact with that meat to serve its purpose. You know, the temptation for many Christians today is to react to the darkness by withdrawing from it. And I think we're doing that more and more. More. But if we aren't out there living visibly among the world, how will they see? You know, I I think it's worth asking, what are our baskets? What are the things we use or the ways we hide our light from the world out there? Again, there's a lot. We're really good at this sometimes. I know for me, pride, just self-centeredness, you know, frankly, I'm concerned about more about myself than others. And so I ask if things are good for me, and if they are, I do, and if they're not, I don't. Y'all, I'm top of that list. I think fear, you know, we we can hide from the world for fear of being tainted by it. But I think there's one that's becoming more and more unmistakable. And we all know it, and it's that thing that probably most of you in here don't want me to talk about, and there's a few who probably want me to talk about way too much. We've got a political basket in our culture that is causing us, To withdraw. Study after study shows that more and more in our culture, people divide over one thing and one thing only, and it's their political stances. But you know that. I bet there's no one in this room who doesn't have a friend or family relationship that is strained because of politics right now. And what's even sadder than that is, all the studies show it's the same in the church more and more, there is one reason people choose their churches today, and it has nothing to do with doctrinal statements or how seriously the church takes the Great Commission. People choose churches where the others in that church agree with their politics. And so we've got to stop and ask ourselves, if, listen, if the church separates, like the rest of the culture, into our political baskets, how will we shine light into darkness And isn't that the exact opposite of strategically placing a lamp on a stand so that it can have the most influence over the darkness? I read some words by a great preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of the most influential pastors of the past century. He was a pastor at Westminster Chapel in London from 1943 to 1968. Now, those years just happened to coincide with the rise of communism in the Cold War between the East and the West. And there were many, many, many people who thought the job of his church should be to end communism. Now listen, Lloyd-Jones was against communism. He knew the bloodbath that Stalin was doing in Russia. He, he saw how the USSR was trying to stamp out the church. But he also knew that Jesus called us not to hide our light, but to strategically place it in the darkness. So this is what he wrote, talking about this passage in particular. If the Christian church today spends most of her time denouncing communism, it seems to me that the main result will be that communists will not be likely to listen to the preaching of the gospel. If the church is always denouncing one particular section of society, she is shutting the evangelistic door upon that section. If we take the New Testament view of these matters, we must believe that the communist has a soul to be saved in exactly the same way as everybody else. It is my business as a preacher of the gospel and a representative of the church to evangelize all kinds and conditions and classes of men and women. The moment the church begins to intervene in these political, social, and economic matters, therefore, she is hampering and hindering herself in her God-appointed task of evangelism. Sin can be as terrible in a capitalist as in a communist. It can be as terrible in a rich man as in a poor man it can manifest itself in all classes and in all types and in all groups. To which I would add, we need to be prepared to be sought in all classes in all types in all groups. Our purpose is nothing short of redeeming as many as we can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to do that, our presence is requested. We have to show up. We can't remove ourselves from the world out there. There's another basket that I know I'm guilty of that, that we can use to, to hide our light from the darkness out there. It's church. Y'all, if we are not very careful, we can use the church and ministries and things we're involved in to hide from the darkness instead of spread the light of the gospel to it. You know what the hardest thing to do in ministry right now is? the hardest thing to do in ministry is to get someone to leave a life group that they love and is full of really bright lights and really salty salt. It's next to impossible. And so I can't tell you how many times this scenario has played out. People come to the church experiencing the decay and the darkness of loneliness and isolation. They're wanting fellowship. They're wanting discipleship. They're wanting to be part of a community, but there's no one for them. You know why? Why? We've got 15 lamps all in one living room together. Just lighten up other light. You know the church started as a small group? It did. There's 12 guys and then 11 and then back to 12. Start as a small group. Ask yourself, if the original small group, the 12 disciples, had done what you're doing, would the gospel have ever made it to you? Thank the Lord that there's didn't just stay together and hide from the darkness thank thank the lord that they didn't just point one leader and say hey you lead us and we'll meet and stay safe they went out and here we sit today in fact it's interesting after the resurrection you don't see them all together again you know why they're out being salt and light read paul's letters Man, Paul, there are people Paul loves deeply. He longs for them. He calls them brothers. He, he goes on and on about his affection for them. I mean, it's almost too much. You're like, tone it down, Paul. But you know why he's writing letters to them? Because he's not with them. He says, like, I'm, I'm going to go light this darkness over here. You go light that darkness over there. Men and women, nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere, do you find a group of believers who huddle together with their favorite people and keep the world out. You know what you see over and over again? You see believers who come together for a time and then they go out as salt and light. And that process repeats and repeats and repeats. And that's why the gospel made it to you. So don't let it stop with you. What if we were willing to be peculiar for a purpose? What if you say, you know, I know it sounds like a bad plan, Jesus told me to go out and make disciples. He told me to be light in the darkness. So as much as I love my people in this group or in this ministry, as much as it saddens me or makes me nervous to to venture out into this other group or this this other ministry, you know what? I'm going to seek out those who are lonely, disconnected, dying for someone to walk with them. And I'm going to strategically position myself to follow God's purpose for my light, to be light in the darkness. Man, that would stand out. Man, that would light a dark world. You are peculiar with a purpose. And that purpose is to show God to those who can't see him on their own. Don't use the church. Don't use anything else to hide that. You know, I I realized this week, as many times I've read this passage and sang songs like this little one of mine from probably one of the first songs that I've learned, as familiar as I was with this passage, I've almost always had the exact wrong reaction to it. See, verse 16, it ends with a promise. It says, you know, when we're the dark, decaying world, when it sees us living as salt and light, they're going to see our good deeds, and then what are they going to do? They're going to glorify God. They're going to worship God because of that. And until this week, I think I was completely mistaken about how this works. Here's how I usually thought of it. So, not long ago, me and some guys from White House, we put together a rec league softball team, and we called ourselves the salt of the turf Okay, this was our jersey. I wanted to call us hitters in the hands of an angry God, but I was told it wouldn't fit on here. Uh, it didn't go well. We weren't very salty, okay? Uh, we lost every game. I think once we made it the full innings, we didn't get mercy ruled. Uh, this will show you. So I was, I was about the average uh, amount of in shape and athletically capable So that's what we were working with. And uh, we had two guys, didn't finish the season because they got injured just jogging to first base. I mean, they didn't trip, no one hit them, they weren't even moving fast. Just halfway there and something broke and they were done. So according to how I used to think about verse 16, man, we were terrible salt on that turf. We forfeit our jerseys because... Listen. Let's be honest. No one sees a fat guy pull a hammy and says glory to God. All right. Y'all just know Joe. one time I'm in outfield, right field, where no one hits it. But one time somebody hit there, easy fly ball. Here it comes, and I'm I'm doing this, you know, and I don't know what I'm doing. That's just what they do on TV. The outfielder, eight feet away, the the ball thuds on the ground. No one saw that and said, wow, God must be awesome. No, 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 how I used to think, you know, if we wanted to be salt, man, we would, we would go out there and we would win every game. We'd turn double, double plays, we would hit home runs. In short, I would perform. And somehow my excellence on the softball field would make people say, wow, man, God must be awesome for him to be so good at softball. You know, it's so easy, and I've done it, to take that same attitude Into my job and my family, you know, just think, hey, when I'm when I'm killing it, people are gonna see and say, Glory to God. When I'm morally pure, when I'm successful, when I handle every obstacle, and I have a happy marriage, when I'm when I'm the envy of everyone who knows me. Y'all, that's not how it works at all. Not even a little bit. The worst thing you can do is leave here saying, you know what? I'm gonna be salt and light by being amazing and not having any problems. First of all, you're gonna fail. Second of all, what little success you have, people going to they're not going to see that and glorify God, they're going to see that and glorify you. Ricky Garner, our pastor at our Hope Campus, he helped me I think understand this in context. So in context, what comes right before the salt and light passage? The beatitudes. So in context, the good works he is talking about is the beatitudes. He's saying you will be peculiar with a purpose, but how you mourn. When you're walking through tragedy and it hurts. When you're meek. Not when you're oppressive, when you're meek. When you're poor in spirit. When you realize, listen, I'm not killing it. When you make peace, hello. You want to stand out today? Go make peace with that person who all your friends think represents everything wrong with the world today. In a culture that only knows how to shout at each other, be a peacemaker. Man, you'll prevent some decay. Man, you'll let people taste the goodness of God. And right before Salt Light, when you are persecuted, when you suffer for his sake, did you know every time in history, every time the church has had a great influence on the culture, it's been because we were willing to suffer. Suffering Has been the city on a hill that no matter how hard people try, they can't put out and they can't ignore. I love the way N.T. Wright put it. When God takes charge, He doesn't send in the tanks, He sends in the meek and the poor and the hungry for justice and the merciful and the peacemakers. And by the time the people with the tanks and the guns have realized what's going on, the meek and the merciful and the poor in heart have established schools, orphanages, and hospitals and all sorts of projects in the name of Jesus in order to show what it looks like when God becomes king. I love that last line. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount, men and women. This is what it looks like when God becomes king. So if I had to summarize what I think Jesus is teaching us this morning, it's this. God places his people in the midst of a decaying and dark world to give it a taste and a glimpse of what it looks like when God becomes king. God places his people strategically in the midst of a decaying and dark world to give it a taste and a glimpse of what it looks like when God becomes king. Fellow Salt and Light, how about we walk out those doors and be peculiar with a purpose? Let's pray. Lord, I have to admit, all week, and especially probably this morning, I'm intimidated by this call. I feel unworthy by this call. And yet I have to say, what a grace. What a privilege. Lord, you take people... That you would do that, you would take people who loved the darkness and not only redeem them, but let but then use them to bring others to the light. Lord, give us the faith. Give us the know, the want to to follow you in this call. And where that requires meekness, mercy, compassion, even suffering, Lord, would you supernaturally work those in us? Lord, I, those things are not natural to me. We need your spirit to do these things. Lord, but we believe your word is true. Whether you can give people a glimpse of what it is like when you are king. And Lord, as we walk out the doors, we look for that day. We look for that day when your kingdom comes in its fullness. We hope for the day when we get not just a little taste of what it's like when you're king, but Lord, we, we dine at the full banquet We long for that day. We hope for that day. We pray for that day. Teach us to live for that day. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.